Oh, good morning. Thank you, Foco. I um, want to bring my greetings from Monihol Church. Um, if we've not met before, my name's Andy. I'm one of the ministers over at Monihol. Uh, it's a real privilege and joy to be here this morning. We rejoice in our partnership in the gospel in our city as churches. And we're praying on for Stephen, uh, that the Lord will be gracious and grant him a real full and swift recovery. Before we um, turn to God's word, let's, uh, let's just briefly pray together. Almighty God, you've told us that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. That the man and woman of God, children of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so, Father, we pray that this morning as we open up this portion of your word, uh, Lord, that you will speak to every single one of us, Lord. By your Holy Spirit, apply your word to our hearts. May our minds be renewed and our lives transformed to your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, can you uh, open up Acts chapter 19? If you have a Bible, Acts chapter 19. Uh, That's going to be our passage this morning. Uh, Before we read the scriptures together, I just want to introduce... Uh, this passage and the theme for this morning. The theme I've got for this passage is Christianity and culture wars. Christianity and culture wars. Now I grew up in the 1970s and um, I hope most of you have heard of the Salvation Army. Has everyone heard of Salvation Army? I think it's um, mostly it began in the UK. Um, When I was in the 70s growing up as a kid there was a Salvation Army um, depot just around the corner from where I lived. And every Sunday, the Salvation Army brass band would come marching out and down our street and to this big green where they had an open-air service. And as a little kid, me me and my best friend David Young, when we heard the brass band playing, we would run outside and we we would march behind the band pretending we were soldiers. You know, we'd get a stick pretend it was a rifle, and we'd march with this Salvation Army band. Now, it was only much later that I discovered that the Salvation Army began back in the the 1800s, in 1865. Uh, You might know the story, William and Catherine Booth. They they started to take God's word out onto the streets of East London. They had a real burden, particularly for the people who were living in poverty on the streets. They, They had a motto. Soup, soap, and salvation. And they did a great work. They set up shelters for the homeless. Uh, They ran soup kitchens uh, and rescue homes for vulnerable women, women who were fleeing domestic violence and prostitution. But alongside those ministries, one of the, the big things about the Salvation Army was they preached against the evils of alcoholism. If you think about the time in the late 1800s, it was a time of massive social change. Uh, Loads of people were moving from rural areas into the cities. And as a result, conditions were often overcrowded and filthy. Poverty and disease were rife. And the public house was seen as an escape from the squalor for many. Uh, Many people would go to the pub as a place of warmth 
where they could drown their sorrows with cheap beer. And, and drunkenness and alcoholism flowed from that. And, and the many evils came from that. And this was one of the things the Salvation Army uh, preached against. And as a result, not everyone agreed or liked their message. Uh, they were fierce opponents. The fiercest opposition came from groups who called themselves the skeleton armies. Uh, when the Salvation Army would go out doing their open air services, the skeleton armies, these would be bands of people. They would follow them, shouting abuse at them all the, all the way. They were trying to disrupt their meetings. They would carry banners with skulls and crossbones on. And they would, they would shout out their own sort of mocking motto. Their motto was beef, beer and backy, kind of ridiculing the, the Salvation Army. They, they threw rocks at the, at the Salvation Army people. They threw dead rats at them. Did everything they could to try and disrupt their services. And at first the local authorities didn't know what to do about this. Uh, they, they tried to ban the Salvation Army from having open air services. Uh, and they even took some of the Salvation Army members to court prosecuting them for disrupting the peace. Well, eventually, common sense prevailed. Uh, eventually, the authorities realized it wasn't the Salvation Army who were breaching the peace, but their violent opponents. I mention all of this because this is an example of what we now today call a culture war. Uh, a culture war, it's a it's a cultural conflict between different groups of people in a society who, who clash over their beliefs and values. Uh, you don't need me to tell you today, our society is dominated by culture wars. Uh, they're often stoked up and stirred up on social media, uh, but they can still spill over into actual physical riots sometimes on the streets. Uh, respectful, reasonable debate between people who have different beliefs is very rare today. Subtlety and nuance is not allowed. You've got to pick your side and take your stand in a polarised position. If you read, watch the news, if you go on social media, people are fighting against each other, fighting over political views, fighting over traditional or progressive moral values, fighting over race or social class. And it raises a really important question for every one of us. If we're Christians, how should we respond to culture wars? How should we speak and live as Christians in a society that is increasingly intolerant and hostile towards our faith and our values. Well, Acts chapter 19 reveals one of the earliest culture wars. Uh, the clash between Christianity and the surrounding culture. And I think it can help us to know how we should respond to the culture wars of our day. So that's just by way of introduction. Can we turn to that passage then we're going to be looking at this morning? Acts chapter 19. And we're going to read from verse 21. Uh, just to put it in context, Paul is on his missionary journeys, preaching the gospel in different places. And he's come to the city of Ephesus. 
And he's been there for some time. And now we read uh, in verse 21, chapter 19 of Acts. After these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. Having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades. And he said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you can see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. There's a danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. She may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged. And they were crying out, great is Artemis of Ephesus. So the city was filled with confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples wouldn't let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. Most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours... They all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor bathsemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring their charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that can give justify to justify this commotion. When he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. I have two lessons I want us to, to glean from this incident in Acts this morning, two simple lessons. And the first one is a real encouragement. If you're a believer this morning, 
It's an encouragement. And it's this. The gospel is unstoppable. So stay calm. The gospel is unstoppable. So stay calm. Uh, You might know that the book of Acts is actually, it's the second book that Luke wrote. Luke wrote the gospel of Luke. And then as a sequel, he wrote the book of Acts. And he refers back to his first book at the beginning of Acts. He says in that first book, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven. And so the book of Acts is picking up from where the gospel left off. And in the book of Acts, Luke is telling us all that the Lord Jesus continued to do and to teach through his apostles empowered by the Holy Spirit. And if you read the book of Acts, the overarching theme is the unstoppable nature of the gospel. Uh, Before he ascended to heaven, uh, Jesus said to his disciples, he made a promise to them. He said, you are going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses. Not just here in Jerusalem, but in all Judea, in Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And Acts tells the story of how that happened. How the gospel spread like wildfire from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And along the way, if you, if you look at Acts and study it, you'll notice Luke does something really helpful. Along the way, Luke, every now and again, every few chapters, Luke stabs into the ground like a, a verbal signpost, a, a marker reminding us of that gospel progress as you go through the book. So to give you some examples, chapter 6, in verse 7, we read this. The word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of priests became obedient to the faith. See, chapter 6, verse 7. Gospel progress in Jerusalem. Then a bit later, chapter 9, verse 31. The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord And in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And then again in chapter 12, verse 24, the word of God increased and multiplied. The gospel is unstoppable. That's the message. It reminded me of, you know, when you see on the news, uh, sometimes we have uh, severe storms, don't we, in different parts of the world. Even in the UK, sometimes there can be Storms that come come upon the country and you get severe flooding and the the power sometimes of those floods that we see on the news. They're unstoppable, aren't they? You know, trees are uprooted, cars, even buildings are, are washed away with the power of the flood. Well, the same is true with the gospel of God. It's not a destructive force like a flood. It's a wonderfully, powerfully liberating force of God's grace, capturing the hearts of men and women and boys and girls. There are times when that gospel spread is more rapid, uh, times when God's spirit is poured out in abundance, times of revival. 
Uh, but there are other times where there is greater persecution. Whatever the times the church may go through, the gospel will keep spreading. God will keep building his church, his kingdom, because it's God's power at work. And this spread of the gospel, this unstoppable nature of the gospel is the background to this riot in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. Uh, When Paul first arrived in Ephesus, you can read it at the beginning of the chapter, he gets there and and as is custom, he goes straight away to the synagogue and he seeks to to preach and to reason with uh, the God-fearers and the Jews in the synagogue. But he has three months of, of complete unbelief and opposition from the Jews in the city. So he then turns his attention to the Gentiles. And he begins these, um, these daily discussions. Uh, we're told it's in the lecture hall of Tyrannus or Tyrannus. And he carries that on for two years. And, and Luke tells us that because of those two years preaching and teaching in that lecture hall, all the Jews and all the Greeks, not only in Ephesus, but in the whole province of Asia, hear the word of the Lord. And they not only hear it, many come to faith. Uh, We're told, Luke tells us, that many believe. And and there was dramatic moments. In Ephesus, uh, many of the people who'd been caught up in the occult, who came to faith, they, they gathered together. And they brought their sort of magic scrolls and everything, all their stuff. And they burned it publicly. And confessed their faith in Christ. And so we get, just before our passage in verse 20 of chapter 19, we get another one of these signposts, these verbal signposts from Luke. He says, so the word of the Lord continued to increase, and it prevailed mightily. That is what's prompting this riot. That is what prompted this guy Demetrius to gather together all the silversmiths and all the workmen. He didn't see it as a positive thing, did he? He hated it. But he admits the gospel is spreading. Uh, Look what it says in verse 26. You see and hear, he's talking to the crowd. Not only in Ephesus, but almost in all of Asia. This man, Paul, he's persuaded and he's turned away a great many people. Saying that God's made with hands. Are not God's. He's admitting. Doesn't like it. But he's acknowledging. The gospel is spreading. And that is why he sees it. As a threat. A threat to their way of life. Uh, Demetrius is like many before. And many since. Uh, and, and the crowd in Ephesus. People who assume the gospel's untrue. And therefore it must be resisted. Even to the point. Of violence. I don't know if you're familiar with the earlier in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, as the gospel is beginning to be proclaimed by the apostles, the Sanhedrin, the sort of Jewish council, they try to stop it. They're getting angry. They're getting upset at the spread of this good news about Jesus. And they try to stop it. Uh, They think if they can intimidate the apostles with enough force and ferocity, they'll quench it. But then... Gamaliel stands up in the Sanhedrin and he speaks some very wise words to the Sanhedrin. Do you remember those words of Gamaliel? 
He said, leave these men alone. If their purpose is just, just of men, then it will fail. It will fade. It will come to nothing. But if this gospel they proclaim is from God, you try and stop it. You won't be able to stop it. You'll only be fighting against God. It's a warning here for us. Let us not be so foolish as to fight against God. I I don't know all of you this morning. Maybe there's someone sat here this morning. and, And you're just, in a way, you're just like Demetrius. You see God, you see the gospel of Jesus as a threat to your way of life. And you're resisting, you're rebelling, you're rejecting it. Don't be so foolish. The Lord is almighty. He's our creator. He gives us our life and breath and everything. And he loves us. He wants to rescue us. He's come into the world in the person of Jesus to do that. Turn to him while you can. Don't live the rest of your days rejecting the good and gracious and merciful God. That's a futile and a foolish way to live. If you live and end your life that way, you'll end in ruin. But the church, Christians, we will face opposition. Always in this world. Sometimes it will be verbal abuse, mocking, ridicule. Sometimes it will be physical persecution by mobs or even by the state. But take heart, despite 2,000 years of opposition and hostility, the gospel is still spreading. It's the power of God for salvation. So let that encourage your heart today. When we face hostility, when we face a hostile culture, people who are hostile to our faith, don't panic Stay calm. God's purposes will prevail. God will build his church. His kingdom will prevail. The gates of hell, Satan and every evil power will not prevail against it. Satan will do everything he can to attack the church, to divide the church, to hinder the gospel, to discourage our hearts... But he will fail in the end. Jesus will have the victory. I think that's what encouraged and gave courage and comfort to someone like Martin Luther uh, during the Reformation. Martin Luther faced all kinds of threat and opposition and hostility. But his confidence was in God. And his power. And he wrote a fantastic hymn. Uh, We're going to sing it at the end. In that hymn he says. Though this world with devils filled. Should threaten to undo us. We will not fear. For God has willed. His truth. To triumph. Through us. God will prevail. Uh, That's an assurance we can have. It shouldn't lead us to be. Arrogant. Or triumphalistic. God doesn't want us to be angry and aggressive towards those who are 
opposed to the gospel. God doesn't need us, you know, to take up arms and attack our culture. We have to guard our hearts against that. Guard our hearts against the, the mob mentality, the tribalism that is stoked up on social media. We've got to guard the way we speak and act towards those who oppose the gospel. If we're Christ's people, we shouldn't be aggressive or harsh. We should be winsome and wise. We should speak the truth of the gospel with boldness, but with grace. Speaking the truth in love. Peter puts it in his letter. He says, always be ready. If you're a believer, always be ready to give a defense. Give a reason for the hope that is in you. But do it with gentleness. Do it with respect. That's the first lesson for us. The gospel is unstoppable, so stay calm. The second and final lesson I want us to draw from this passage is that the gospel is uncomfortable. So take courage. The gospel is uncomfortable, so take courage. Despite the caricature that many people have of Christianity and of Christians, the Christian faith is actually a peaceful and tolerant faith. Now we can admit, we can acknowledge, if you look back through history, there have been travesties. There have been times in the past where those who profess to be Christians have tried to impose the Christian faith on others. You know, the Crusades is a, a terrible time in history where that was happening. And even today, sometimes some people who profess to be Christians, they speak and act in ways that are harsh and cruel and aggressive. The gospel never sanctions that, way, that in the name of Christ. If you look at the early church, if you read the book of Acts, how did the church gr- explosively grow? It wasn't through violence or intimidation. It was through preaching the gospel. Through loving people. Showing compassion and kindness to the poor. So why is the gospel so often opposed with such hostility? Why were Demetrius and this, this crowd in Ephesus so, so angry that they're rioting? It's because the gospel is deeply uncomfortable, unsettling. Uh, In one way or another, the gospel deeply challenges the beliefs and values of every society. Throughout history, it challenges the beliefs and values of every human being, including every one of us today. In Ephesus and in Asia, so many people... Uh, were becoming Christians, it was changing their society. Uh, And that was impacting their way of life. It was impacting people's businesses. Ephesus, you might not know this, but Ephesus was, at the time, it was famous for the worship of goddess Artemis. Uh, There was a temple to Artemis just outside the city. And it was one of the seven wonders of the world. It was a huge attraction. People would... flock to the city uh, to, to see the temple and to worship Artemis. And it created a, a great business opportunity 
for people like Demetrius, silversmiths. Uh, they made loads of money. They would make these little shrines, little miniature uh, temples of Artemis that people could buy um, and put, put in their home, you know, and worship around their little, their little shrine. Well, as more and more people were coming to faith, believing in Christ, embracing the gospel, they were turning from that idol worship. And it was affecting the revenue and the reputation of people like Demetrius. Uh, I learned a new, a new word when I was meditating and studying this passage. I came across the word demagogue. Are you all familiar with the word demagogue? A demagogue is a political figure who seeks to support their, their cause by appealing to people's prejudices rather than rational argument. That's a demagogue. Demetrius strikes me as a bit of a demagogue. He's not talking to the crowd rationally and calmly and kindly. He's stirring them up based on their prejudices. It reminds me of many political figures we've seen throughout history and even today. People who, people who know how to stir up a crowd. Manipulate the crowd and their prejudices. That's what Demetrius is doing here. Uh, look at his speech there in verse 25. His speech to the crowd to try and stir them up. He says, men, you know that from this business, you know, making these shrines, we have our wealth. Tapping into their, their pockets. You see in here that not only in Ephesus, but almost in all of Asia, this man Paul is persuading people to turn away a great many people. From these gods. He says these gods that we've made with our hands are no gods. It's ironic isn't it? So ironic. His words. How empty. There's a danger not only that this trade of ours may be coming into disrepute. But also that the temple of the goddess Artemis. The great Artemis. People might start thinking of it as nothing. She might be deposed from her magnificence. By Paul. You see what he's doing? He's warning them we're losing revenue. We're losing money. We're, we're potentially losing our reputation. And most of all, this is a threat to our religion. Paul in this gospel he's proclaiming is seen as a threat to their way of life. Not just to their business, but to their beliefs. And that's what provokes the crowd to such a violent reaction. Verse 28, at the moment he mentions their beliefs, their faith, their religion, they become enraged. And they just start crying out like a mob. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The whole city's in uproar. And then the crowd sees two of Paul's companions. They storm into the theatre in the city. Now, I don't know if have any of you been to, to Ephesus. It's in modern day Turkey. Back in the late 90s, I went over with a, a friend of mine, um, went, went there for a week's holiday. And Ephesus now is just kind of an ancient ruin. But the, th- the theatre, the, 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 the um, remains of the theatre are there. You can stand in this theatre uh, where this crowd was. At the time, uh, scholars estimate that about 20,000 people could crowd into that theatre. We don't know how many were there this day. But it was utter chaos, wasn't it? 
Did you notice how Luke describes it? Some cried out one thing, some cried out another thing. Most people didn't know why they were there. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Paul wants to enter the theatre. Can you imagine that? Paul wants to go into the theatre to try and calmly reason with the crowd to defend the gospel to this mob. But the disciples won't let him. They can see this is chaos. If he tries to go in there, he's going to get lynched. Uh, Luke mentions these, um, these officials, Paul's friends, who, who probably weren't Christians, but these, these officials in the city, they urge Paul not to go in. Uh, this isn't the time to try and reason with this mob. Uh, Luke mentions some Jews try and get this guy Alexander to stand up at the front of the crowd. We, we don't quite know what what is going on here, but it's very likely that the Jews in the city who weren't Christians, they want to distance themselves from Paul and the Christians. You know, get, get one of their spokesmen to stand up and say, hey guys, just to, just to say, all this stuff about Artemis and Paul and the gospel, uh, that's not us. You know, we're, we're, you know, we're okay. Don't, need, don't, don't attack us. Well, as soon as the crowd realise this guy Alexander's a Jew, they won't let him speak. They just... Shout for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It's just a frenzy, isn't it? And who knows what might have happened if the town clerk hadn't intervened. Uh, This guy near the end of the the passage, he's like the, the leader of the local council in Ephesus. And he intervenes. He calms the crowd down, doesn't he? Verse 35 Men of Ephesus, who is there who doesn't know that the city of the Ephesians is a temple keeper for the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things can't be denied, you ought to be quiet. Don't do anything rash. Then he warns them, hey, you're in danger of being prosecuted by the Roman authorities. We're in danger of rioting here. You've brought these men here. They're neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore, Demetrius, if Demetrius, if you have a valid complaint, if you have a legal complaint, go to the law courts. Present your evidence. As it is, we are in danger of being prosecuted for rioting. There's no good reason to be here. Paul and his companions have not broken the law they've done nothing wrong it's this crowd this pagan crowd who are threatening the peace of that society and if you read through the whole book of acts luke punctuates the progress of the gospel with these little incidents where the authorities stand up and defend the christians luke incorporates these little incidents He's making the point that the gospel is not a threat to peace and civil order in society. It doesn't incite violence or impose itself by force. But it does challenge every person and every culture. And that's why people oppose it. And that's a lesson for us. This morning, for Christians, because the gospel challenges 
our sin, our beliefs, our values, because it challenges every person. If we're a Christian, we must take courage. We can stay calm. God is in control. The gospel is unstoppable. We can stay calm, but we must take courage. Because people will be hostile to the faith. Let us not, in our day, be intimidated by the mob who want to silence our faith. Let's not be intimidated into privatizing our faith, keeping it in a little box, in secret. We must be courageous. We must speak, keep speaking the truth in love. We need to pray for boldness mixed with wisdom. You see, just like Paul in the middle of this riot in Ephesus, there are times when it's better not to speak. Do you remember Jesus told his disciples, don't cast your pearls before pigs or they'll trample on them. Sometimes it's wiser not to speak. But let's not use that as an excuse never to speak. Let's pray for boldness and pray for wisdom. We are called by Jesus to keep witnessing to the world. That's our calling. We have no control over the response, whether the gospel that we speak is received gladly or rejected harshly. We leave that with God. And we can trust our God. He will do his sovereign salvation work as we faithfully live for him. So let's take heart this morning. The gospel is unstoppable. So stay calm. And the gospel is uncomfortable. So take courage. Amen.